Welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, a weekly podcast where we engage every square inch of God's world with God's worldview. I am your host, Robert Cunningham, and we are in the midst of a four-part series exploring the internet's impact on our lives, but I've made the decision to take a break from that this week uh, to talk about what everyone is talking about, at least everyone's talking about in Kentucky, but it seems like even nationally. And that is the loss of Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin to Democratic uh, candidate Andy Bashir. Um, I understand Governor has Governor Bevin has called for a re-canvassing, and who knows what will come of that, but as the votes currently stand, Bevin has lost. And I just had I just had too many thoughts and couldn't resist commenting, so I promise we will finish up our internet series uh, next week. So Bevan's loss is simultaneously shocking and unsurprising. And the reason it's shocking is that he is a conservative governor of a deeply conservative state, fully backed by President Trump, who carried Kentucky by an enormous uh, 30 percentage points in 2000, 2016 and, and even held a rally for Bevan the night before the election. It is seemingly inconceivable that a governor with Bevan's views policies, and endorsements could lose in Kentucky. And yet, for those of us in Kentucky, the results were at the same time not surprising. Why? Not because of the things Bevan did as our governor, but because of how he did things. Let me preface this with a couple qualifications. First, as a pastor, I am very careful when commenting on politics Now, the entire premise of this podcast is that the clerical voice has become a forgotten voice in social life, and I do think it's important to recapture the role of the minister in shaping public thought. And yes, of course, that includes politics. But I think it's important how ministers add their perspective to politics. It needs to be a prophetic voice more so than an endorsing voice, meaning The pastor must rise above political tribalism to critically engage both sides with the Christian worldview. If I am faithful as a public prophet, so to speak, then I'll come across as too conservative for progressives and too progressive for conservatives. And I will pastor in such a way that uh, both progressives and conservatives are simultaneously welcomed and challenged within my congregation. That's what we see modeled in Jesus. Uh, Social liberals conspired against him and social conservatives conspired against him. And this was because he proclaimed a kingdom, an ethic, a worldview that challenged every natural order of this fallen world. So I say that to say this. A critique of Bevan is not an endorsement of Bashir. I'm not playing those games. Second qualification. I really don't want this to be all about Matt Bevan. I have met um, I have met him several times, and every time he has been kind to me. He even graciously hosted a fundraiser for one of our church's ministries at the governor's mansion. Uh, So from my personal experience, Matt Bevin has been great to me and the causes that I care about. However, for whatever reason, that's not been the experience of the greater public, and that is what I want to focus on. 
I have watched uh, cable news analysis of Bevan's loss. I have read the many op-eds. I have um, scanned the tweets when Bevan's name was trending, and almost all of them are misinterpretations of what took place here in Kentucky. I'll give you some examples. Um, the, the Atlantic's Alex Wagner said this about, about the loss. As it turns out, when the governor slashes social programs in one of the poorest states in America, voters don't want to reelect him. Uh, the Slate's Jordan Wiseman explained it this way. Obamacare and Medicare are fairly popular for all their flaws, and fixing, expanding them rather than starting from scratch is probably the better national policy pitch. Uh, David uh, Leonard uh, from the New York Times saw it as the success of the new democratic strategy. This is what he says. It's a strategy we've seen before from Democrats. Portray Republican incumbents as extremists who are hurting ordinary families and instead promise common sense solutions. The strategy has proved highly effective, too, as last night Bashir pulled off a big upset beating Bevin in a state that voted for Donald Trump by 30 percentage points. Gail Collins, also from the New York Times, saw the loss as a referendum on Trump's waning popularity, saying this about the Trump rally in Lexington the night before. Um, she said, Trump encouraged his fans to see the Kentucky gubernatorial election as a referendum on him. If you run into any problems this week that send you into a funk, just remind yourself that Donald Trump is feeling worse. All of this is wrong. All of these takes could not be more wrong. Outside of Bevin, the election was a huge success for Kentucky Republicans. Every single down-ballot Republican candidate won, some who were uh, not expected to win. On Tuesday, many die-hard Kentucky conservatives went to the polls and instead of clicking their normal straight Republican option, they voted for Bashir and then the rest of the Republicans. That was what was on display in our state was not a referendum on Trump. Trump will carry Kentucky in 2020 just like he did in 2016. This wasn't a referendum on policy. Conservative policies remain popular options in Kentucky. This certainly was not a referendum on changing social opinions. Kentucky remains a deeply conservative state on social issues, most notably abortion. And I would go, I would go so far as to say it wasn't even a referendum on Bevin's performance. Um, his social views, the economy, jobs creation, funding the pension for the first time in a long time, it wasn't about these decisions. Instead, this election was a referendum on love. It wasn't what Bevan did as much as how Bevan did things. And what it shows is that the latter is as important as the former, and the Bible would agree. One of the most fascinating passages of Scripture and its implication on biblical ethics is 1 Corinthians 13. The chapter adds an important nuance to virtue that is easily forgotten. And the nuance is this. 
God is not just concerned with what you should and shouldn't be doing, but also with how you do and don't do certain things. And the how you do and don't do is governed by the primacy of love. Here's what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Think about how staggering the implications of that are. It's essentially saying, if, if I know everything but have not love, I know nothing. If my theology, my worldview is perfect but have not love, my theology is heresy. If I boldly stand for justice and have not love, I have actually contributed to injustice. If I give up everything I have, even my body, for the cause and have not love, I have harmed the cause. Simply put, if I am right and have not love, I am wrong. That's how central love is to virtue according to the Christian worldview. Or to state it negatively, lack of love can nullify all virtue according to the Christian worldview. God's expectation of us go goes beyond, way beyond what we say and do and considers the way in which we say and do things. A word we talk about at our church a lot is ethos. Christians tend to only focus on logos. Logos is the content, the content of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And this seems to be the prevailing ethical emphasis Make sure that the logos, the content of your thoughts, words, and deeds are right. And that's that's a good and righteous endeavor. But what 1 Corinthians 13 and many other passages bring into the ethical equation is ethos. Ethos speaks not to what we do, but to how we do things. Not to our virtue, but to the, the feel, the culture of our virtue, not to the mission, but to how the mission is pursued. Ethos isn't measured as much as it is felt. It isn't objective as much as it is subjective. I suppose you could say ethos is our way of being as we enact our logos. And biblically speaking, ethos is not secondary to logos. And I firmly believe that it is this biblical truth the primacy of an ethos of love that was on display in this election. Speaking very candidly, Bevan didn't have a policy issue. Bevan didn't have a formidable challenger issue. Bevan didn't have a lack of endorsement issue. Bevan had an ethos issue. Again, that's not talking about him in his personal life. I'm talking about his public life his public leadership, his public statements. I'm talking about the Bevan our state, not his friends and family, have known over the past few years. Governor Bevan is a conservative governor in a deeply conservative state. What this means is the majority of Kentuckians agree with him. 
and yet they chose to vote instead for someone they don't agree with. How is that possible? I think 1 Corinthians 13 tells us how. If citizens of this great commonwealth think that their governor is right and yet have not his love, then ironically, he becomes wrong in their eyes. And I think that's what happened. This, of course, is most glaring in the pension crisis. Um, For those not in the know, uh, Kentucky's state pension is a mess. For years, it was not only underfunded, um, at times not funded at all, but in addition, our government used it to fund other things besides the pension. And very soon, it will become an all-out crisis if it's not already. Now, ironically, Governor Bevin was elected in part because he promised to take up the challenge of the pension crisis. And he was viewed as an outsider with business experience that uniquely qualified him for the challenge. And to his credit, he went after it. He cut government spending, and as he often reminded us, he was the first governor to actually fund the pension in a long time. So in his mind, he was doing exactly what he was elected to do. And it seemed he was mystified that public workers, specifically our teachers, didn't recognize that and and weren't grateful. Instead, the opposite happened. The very ones he thought he was fighting to help were the very ones raging against him. Why? Because he didn't love them. He fought them. Instead of humility, teachability, compassion, empathy, he chose to dig in his heels, and it was just one callous, hurtful statement after another. I believe with all my heart that one moment of contrition from Bevan if, if just one time he chose humble confession over defensive justification, one sincere public apology followed by sincere change, and Matt Bevin wins in a landslide just like the rest of uh, Republicans in Kentucky. There was one moment in his last debate where the moderator asked him flat out, do you believe you owe teachers an apology? And I remember that moment and thinking to myself, what he does with that question right there is going to determine this election. And what Bevan did is double down. He refused to apologize, talked about um, funding public education, which he has done, and said that his comments have been taken out of context. And when pressed further, he said definitively that he does not owe teachers an apology. Now, I want you to imagine if this was his response. I actually put myself, um, I actually put myself in his shoes um, and said, what would I have said to that question? Do you believe you owe teachers an apology? What would happen if this was a response? Actually, yes, I do. I feel like I need to apologize. And it's an apology that's long overdue. This is my first political office. Coming as an outsider brings unique qualifications and advantages, but I have also learned there are unique challenges. There's a difference between running a business and public service, and our pension crisis has shown me this more than anything else. I remain determined as ever to fix this crisis, and I do believe my plan is working and will work, but what I have learned as a public servant is that it matters how I enact that plan. 
My Christian faith speaks of leadership with words like humility, gentleness, and most of all, love. And in my sincere zeal to solve a crisis, those who bear this crisis have not felt these attributes from me. Simply put, I have hurt with my words the very ones I am trying to help with my policies, and I am sorry. I am not saying sorry if you have a If you have been offended by my words, I'm saying sorry that my words have been offensive. And all I can do is ask for forgiveness and promise to lead differently if you honor me with re-election. What would have happened if he answered that way? I believe one sincere statement like that would have healed our divided state and gotten Bevan re-elected. That's how powerful love is. Now, off of Bevan and onto us. You know, it's easy to cast stones at public leaders, isn't it? But what if your ethos was front and center for the world to see? I can speak uh, personally here. I am certainly not a leader, a public leader on the scale of Matt Bevan, but I have, um, I have had to learn the, the, the convicting lesson of 1 Corinthians 13. I know exactly what it's like to have an ethos problem. And my uh, congregation has been very patient with me as I have learned that lesson. And what I have learned as a leader, and certainly as a pastor, is that I have to constantly check my ethos because I know it can easily undo my logos. What about you? You know, things get really convicting when we move beyond the simplicity of words and deeds and get into the disposition of our words and deeds. So how about questions like this? Um, What impression do you give off? What do people feel in your presence? What what do you do to the culture of your family, your home, um, work, church, etc.? How about this? Is it more important for you to be right or to be loving? Can I be honest? I think the church is experiencing an ethos crisis. Speaking candidly now to Christians, I'm seeing trends within evangelicalism that are becoming disturbingly militant and are not fitting the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. We've forgotten that Christians are actually supposed to be nice people. In reaction to postmodern liberalism, there has been a resurgence of truth, and that's a good thing. I'm all for truth. But what Christians have to understand is that the highest truth of Christianity is love. Consider, for example, the statement that has been popularized by Ben Shapiro. Facts don't care about your feelings. Man, evangelicals are eating that one up. That's right. Truth is truth, whether your liberal subjective feelings agree or not. Whether you like it or not, truth is truth. It sounds so right. And in fact, it is right. Truth is objective, not subjective. Facts don't care about your feelings unless the number one fact is that I must consider your feelings. This is the revolutionary ethic of Jesus and his kingdom. Truth is truth. But according to Jesus... The greatest of truth is love. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you back next week where I promise we will complete our series on the internet. Rate, uh, subscribe, leave a comment, 
and we will be back next week for another episode of Every Square Inch. 